The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. This evening, as you've probably seen from your bulletin, uh, we don't just have one sermon text, but we have two. And actually, that's not completely honest of me either. We'll have many uh, that we'll touch on briefly. Uh, We're about to embark upon something that I think is rather dangerous, which is we're going to try to survey all of the major, well, not all of them, but some of the major themes of the book of Exodus in one sermon. Uh, So here we go. (laughs) But first, let's let's read these two texts which are before us, which are going to be the primary texts we're going to think about uh, this evening. So here we see first Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel, who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. And then, if you will, turn with me to the very closing verses of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and following. This is at the completion of the work of the tabernacle when we're going to see God's presence come to dwell in the tent of meeting. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud, or whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." This is the reading of God's word for this evening. Let us ask the Lord for assistance as we come to study his word together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to survey this glorious book this evening, and we pray, O Father, that you would give us success, that we would see something of your heart towards sinners. We pray, O Lord, that you would show us your mercy and your kindness and your grace alongside your might and your glory and your majesty. And that we see, O Lord, that you are a God who desires to have communion and fellowship with us. We pray now, Lord, that you would bless us and bless this evening's study for the sake of your glory and the good of your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as you see from the title of the sermon, I'm seeking to make a certain argument this afternoon. You see, I've titled the sermon, God's Solution to Man's Greatest Problem. 
And to begin to understand what God's solution to man's greatest problem is, we we have to understand something of man's greatest problem, don't we? This week when I was considering the topic, uh, I just decided to do what every enlightened 21st century man does when he's curious about a question. I, I opened my Google search bar and I typed in, what is the greatest problem facing mankind today? And I got back a list It's a rather depressing list, I'll I'll tell you, Uh, but a list. And and I'll read some of the the wonderful uh, things that Google popped up for me here. The first was biodiversity loss. The second was climate change. The third was uh, the destructive tendencies of artificial intelligence. After that came environmental disaster, which, quite frankly, I thought was a little lazy after they had already noted climate change, but... Nonetheless, not to be left out, was nuclear holocaust, followed by pandemic, followed by biotechnology risk, particularly focused upon the danger of molecular nanotechnology. That's quite a list. Several things jumped out to me about the list. The first thing that jumped out to me is I thought that I was brainstorming for a science fiction novel, But the second thing that jumped out to me about this list is that all of these things, all of these various potential catastrophes, all of these greatest problems, so-called, that face the world today, with the exception of possibly pandemic, are recent. They're recent. You notice that. Google is very concerned about our modern age, our modern technology, destroying us. But I stepped back for a moment and I thought to myself, what would God answer if I was to ask him directly the question, what is mankind's greatest problem today? But since the creation of the world and the fall into sin... And I think the answer is very clear. The Bible speaks to us of mankind's greatest problem from Genesis to Revelation, really. You see, mankind's greatest problem is not that we could potentially wipe ourselves out because we're not responsible enough to use our own technology. Man's greatest problem is is told to us there in those dark and discouraging chapters of Genesis chapter 3 and following where we learn that the greatest problem of mankind today and the greatest problem of mankind for the last couple of thousand years is that mankind, by his sin, has alienated himself from his God. That is the greatest problem that humanity faces today. It's not a recent problem. It's a very old problem. It's a very old problem. Now, what does it have to do with the book of Exodus? Well, I think when we come to the book of Exodus, if we do not understand that our greatest need is to be brought back into fellowship with our God, then we're going to miss the point. We may see some amazing things happen. We may see seas split open and people walking through on dry land. We might see rivers turn to blood. But if we don't get that, if we don't understand the point of the book, 
is to solve the problem that we've seen in the book of Genesis, then we will fail to understand it. The argument I want to make this evening is simply this. The book of Exodus is nothing more or nothing less than the story of God bringing about a solution to man's greatest problem. The book of Exodus is the story of God bringing a solution to man's greatest problem. And the way he does that is threefold. And we're going to see it. We're going to trace these three major themes uh, throughout the book of Exodus and even reaching back into Genesis because it's essential that we understand the prologue to the material we're going to be studying this evening if we are to make any sense out of the book of Exodus uh, by itself. So what I want you to see is that the story of Exodus is, is God's solution to the alienation of man accomplished in three movements. First, by his preservation of his people. Second, by his deliverance of his people. And then third and lastly, by his coming to dwell with his people. And we're going to seek to explore these various aspects of God's work in the world and see how they demonstrate to us why the book of Exodus can become, as Pastor Holtz pointed out last week, the paradigmatic structure of God's salvific acts in the world. Because that wouldn't make much sense, really, if we didn't understand the fundamental problem and God's way of bringing a solution of it. So let's begin then by looking at these first verses which we read, Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and considering first the preservation of God's people. Look with me, if you will. We've read the text, but we'll read it again. The text starts rather abruptly. You note that. He doesn't, Moses doesn't seek to introduce us to the people here. He just assumes that we know what's going on, and that's important. He starts off just this way. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And then he goes on to list the sons, and he tells here that all the descendants of Jacob, who came into Egypt, were at that time 70 persons. And he notes here that Joseph was already in Egypt. We'll stop there for a moment and think about what the book of Exodus is calling us to do at this point. Uh, like, I, like I mentioned, he, he gives no explanation here in Exodus about who these people are or even why they are in Egypt. He assumes, rather, that we've already read the book of Genesis, that we're already familiar with the material. But nonetheless, he seeks to remind us here, I believe, of what has just preceded the text that we're reading. I think it would be worthwhile for us to consider that for just a moment. Think about how the people of Israel got where they are in these verses. Well, how did they get there? Well, particularly, we can think back to Genesis chapter 37 and what follows in the story of Joseph. We remember there how Joseph's brothers, being jealous of him, sold him into slavery in Egypt. We remember this amazing story of how this man is sold into slavery, how he comes into the house of this Egyptian Potiphar, and how he begins to make some success, uh, to make a name for himself, as it were, as, as a faithful servant, and how that's undermined by a false report. We remember what happens next. He's cast into prison. 
And there he sits. He sits until his ability to interpret dreams takes him from the very bottom of Egyptian society, a prisoner in chains, shackled, uh, behind bars, we can imagine him, to being the second in command over all of Egypt. Now, we're familiar with the story, and so sometimes we miss how amazing God's providence is in this story. It's remarkable there that the wickedness of Joseph's brothers and that the wickedness of Potiphar's wife and that the fickleness of Pharaoh are all conspiring to bring about the salvation of God's people. Now think about that for a moment. Do you think that while Joseph was sitting in prison, rotting as it were, do you think that he had any idea what God was doing? Probably not. He may not have even known what God was doing whenever he ascended to be the second in command position over all of Egypt. But think about whenever his desperate brothers come seeking food because of a famine in the land of Canaan. I think about how amazing it must have been for Joseph after all of those years, after all of those wrongs done, to be able to say at the end of the book of Genesis, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God was preserving his people. He was preserving his people. How did they end up in Egypt? They ended up in Egypt because God desired to preserve them from the dangers of the famine in the land of Canaan. But they didn't just end up in Egypt and live this meager existence there, did they? We see that as we begin to consider verses 6 and 7. We see then that Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But what happens next? But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now think about what we've just read here. We've read about a group of refugees, really, coming into the land of Egypt. Only 70 of them. And we read that here, just a few hundred years later, God has taken that 70 Uh, those 70 people, and he's turned them in to a great nation. Such a great nation that as we're going to see later in chapter 1, Pharaoh himself, one of the greatest leaders of the ancient Near East, sees them as an internal threat to his own security. God doesn't just preserve his people in the sense that he keeps them from dying. He blesses them in Egypt. He blesses them. And of course, this had been prophesied by God. Back in Genesis chapter 15, we learn whenever the Lord is speaking with Abram that he's going to bring the people of Abram's descendants into a land where they're going to be servants, but then they're going to be, or they're going to be sojourners, but then they're going to be servants, he tells him. We see it again whenever Jacob comes into Egypt that the Lord tells him, it's okay, I'm going to make you into a great nation there. The Lord is preserving his people, but he's also blessing his people, blessing them greatly. But we would be remiss if we we skipped over 
of verse 7 without making some sort of comment about the language of verse 7. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, the language of verse 7, it it pops off the page, if you will. It's like a neon sign to you. Because you recognize that this is the language of Genesis chapter 1. This is the language that's reiterated in Genesis chapter 9. This is the language of creation that we see here. You know what he says. He says that they were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. It's clear here that Moses intends us to hear an echo of the previous scripture that we know. It's clear that he has a, a certain point that he's trying to prove here by using this language of creation and blessing about the people of Israel in Egypt. One commentator points out that by using this new creational language, what the Lord through Moses is telling us is that as we behold God's grace to his people, as he multiplies them, as he blesses them, as he spreads them throughout the land of Egypt, what we are really beholding is the nucleus of God's new creation. The nucleus of God's new creation. What we see here in embryonic form is the beginning of God's restoration of all things. We shouldn't miss that. We shouldn't miss that. He not only perseveres, or preserves them rather, but he blesses them. He blesses them. Before we move off of this particular topic, I think we should return for just a moment to consider what it would have been like. We've already thought about this briefly, but in a more intentional way, to consider what it would have been like to have been Joseph, to be sitting, rotting in a jail cell. What it would have been like to be Jacob as his ten sons bring him the tattered, destroyed coat of many colors covered in blood as they lay it at his feet as they tell him that his beloved son has been ripped apart by a wild animal think about that think about what that must have been like Think about what it must have been like for Joseph to think to himself, I'm finally making some headway here. Potiphar is elevating me in his household. I'm being blessed here. Only to have his legs kicked out from under him by a false accusation of adultery. What must it have been like to to be these figures as, as they sat there meditating upon what they knew to be true about God? What must it have been like to to sit there and think to yourself, well, I know the Lord God is faithful, but it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it. Uh, Friends, my suspicion is is that you don't have to imagine that. My suspicion is, is that you, like me, and like anyone in this room who has any life experience really at all, knows what it feels like to be surrounded on all sides by hard providences, to be pressed down, to be discouraged, to wonder to yourself, how could God, 
how could God be in this? And I want you to imagine that simply for the reason that sometimes we don't see where God's providence is headed. We don't see it. But by God's grace, in passages like the one we're reading, in stories like the ones we're reflecting on, God shows us how his providence works. He shows us that while we may be in the pits of despair, while we may be wondering to ourselves, how in the world could God be using these things for my good? He is indeed true to his character. Friends, I think that's extremely important for us all to meditate upon as we begin the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is going to end with God's glorious actions towards his people. But as it begins in chapter 1, it's not going to look that way, is it? It's going to look pretty bleak. But we're meant to remember who it is that we serve. And we're meant to remember the character of our God even as we remember. Even as we study this text, remembering that he is faithful and therefore he will preserve his people. But the book of Exodus, of course, moves on. The book of Exodus is not primarily a story about God preserving his people. It moves on from preservation here in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 and 7, to the consideration very quickly of God's deliverance of his people. Now, of course, this is a book that really, in the first half of it at least, is all about God delivering his people. So really, I could have picked many, many, many verses of Scripture or passages of Scripture to discuss with you this evening. But I decided to pick these verses, chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And the reason why I decided to pick that was... Because here is God first begins to explain to Moses his plan that he's going to execute throughout the book of Exodus. We see all the most important elements, or at least the the major important elements of what it means for God to deliver his people. And we can look then at verse 7 and see that the Lord here speaks to Moses here at Mount Horeb, remember, and he says to him, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and a broad land a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Preserites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you might bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. We'll pause there for a moment. There are many things that we can say about God's deliverance of his people from the book of Exodus. But I just want to draw out a few, and I'm intentionally skipping over one big one, and I'll tell you what that is. God uses his servants to deliver his people. 
I say that, and then I'll leave that alone for another time. But it is significant. Look then and see in verse 7 that the Lord tells us that he sees the affliction of his people and he hears the cries of his people in bondage. This is, if you will, the first act in God's plan of deliverance. He recognizes the oppression of his people. Of course, this encourages the Christian because we know that just as he hears the cries of his people in oppression here, so he now hears the cries of our oppression, even even when it doesn't seem like it. You note here that the people have been oppressed for a long time, it seems at least, when God is speaking to Moses here. But his inaction is not to be confused for deafness. He hears them, but the time has not yet come in his providence for him to deliver them. It is at hand now, though. So first, the Lord hears the cries of his people in bondage. But then in verses 8 through 10, we see that deliverance involves grace to God's people. He hears them. He hears their suffering. He remembers, no doubt, his promises to Abraham that he would give his descendants a land, particularly the land of Canaan. And he acts in response to his covenant promises in the past. His covenant promises and his grace towards his people stand out here. But even as we reflect on Genesis 15 there, just for a moment, we have to remember that it's not only God's grace towards his people that's involved in God's deliverance, but it's also God's judgment on their enemies that's involved in their deliverance. That's what he says back in Genesis chapter 15. He says that he will deliver them from their bondage, from being servants, and that he will judge the nation that has enslaved them. Now that's a major theme that we're going to see in the book of Exodus. Think with me for a moment about the plagues, for instance, or just God's explicit statements at various times. For instance, in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, speaking of the Passover, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Now listen to this. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. That's an interesting statement. You see there that he's going to judge the Egyptians. He's going to judge their leaders. He's going to judge the people who have oppressed his people. But he's also going to judge their gods. That's important when we come to discuss the plagues. Because as you may already know, many of the plagues seem to be directed specifically at particular gods of Egypt. Uh, We can almost hear Yahweh mocking the gods of Egypt in the plagues. Think about what he does. He says, oh, oh, you're a big fan of Osiris, are you? You trust in him to bring the Nile that that gives you uh, fertile land and that gives you food. And all the things that the god Osiris is supposed to do in association with the Nile. Well, he says, this is what I think of Osiris. I'll turn his river to blood. You may think he can help you. He cannot. 
What does he say to Ra? He's the God of the sun. Well, he says, you want to worship Ra? You think your false God is more powerful than the God who created the heavens and the earth? I'll cause darkness to cover your lands. Ultimately, I'll extinguish the royal dynasty of Ra when I kill the firstborn of the Pharaoh. God is displaying his judgment. His judgment on the false gods of Egypt, his judgment on the oppressors in Egypt, and his judgment on every aspect of Egyptian society. And the reason why is because judgment on God's enemies is an essential element of God's deliverance. Significant for us to see that theme. But, of course, deliverance does involve more blessing for God's people. You know that when they come out of Egypt, they don't come out the way they went in. We've already said that. They came in, 70 people. They leave a nation. But not only that, they leave burdened, as it were, under all the riches of the Egyptians. God's deliverance not only includes saving his people out of Egypt in Exodus, but it includes bringing them out with more physical possessions than they could have ever gained on their own, than they could have ever probably imagined. The Lord blesses his people. The Lord blesses his people. And then the last point I want us to see about deliverance in the book of Exodus is this. And we see this to to an extent from verse 12 here before us. He, he tells Moses, the Lord is uh, telling Moses here in verse 12, he says, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now this statement is here functioning as a sign that God is going to be true to his word, and he's going to eventually bring the people out, and he's going to give them the land of Canaan. But we're going to see a statement similar to this repeated as the Lord deals with Pharaoh. He's constantly bringing before Pharaoh this desire. Let my people go. Not that they can just wander around in the desert. Not that they can be happy and free from work. But let my people go from serving you so that they can serve me. You see, deliverance has an end. And the end of deliverance in the book of Exodus is not, as we've already mentioned, so that the people might be free of their labors. No doubt there's an element there. But the most important thing is that God is delivering his people so that he might be worshipped by them. Deliverance in the book of Exodus and throughout the word of God is focused upon bringing glory and worship to the God of all creation. That's an important point for us to consider when we take a look at this admittedly very broad theme of God's deliverance of his people in the book of Exodus. But you note here that he calls on Moses to bring the people out and to bring them to the mountain. And that takes us thematically, from considering the first portion of the book 
of Exodus, which really goes from chapter 1 to chapter 15, uh, to considering the second portion of the book of Exodus, which stretches from chapter 16 all the way to chapter 40. And there is a shift in location that has taken place here. You see at the beginning of the book, they are in Egypt. And and then they come out of Egypt through the Red Sea, all the stories we know, and they come uh, to Mount Sinai. And it's there that the Lord deals with his people in a particular way. It's there that we see God drawing near to his people in a more intimate fashion than he has up to this point in all of his word since Genesis chapter 3. You see, what's important for us to see here is that as the book of Exodus develops, as it continues, what we see is God at the beginning of the book being seemingly far off. But as the book progresses, we see him coming closer and closer to his people until we see the climax of that drawing near to his people in chapter 40. And that's where I want to camp out for just a moment and consider God's coming to dwell with his people. Uh, Consider with me for just a moment what we read there. Uh, We see, as we've already read, the tabernacle has been completed. And that construction and the plans for the tabernacle take up all of the chapters which lead up to uh, Exodus chapter 40. But here we see all that work is completed. And after all that work is completed, we see the glory of the Lord. Now note for a second the history of the glory of the Lord up to this point. In the book of Exodus, where has the glory of the Lord been residing? Well, it's been residing on top of the mountain. And it's been there, and the Lord has told the people of Israel, don't get close to the mountain. Because if you get close to the mountain, you're going to die. That's another remarkable thing about the book of Exodus. The closer God gets, the more dangerous it is for his people. Because it is dangerous, friends, when a holy God comes into the presence of sinful men. But here, in these last few chapters, culminating here, we have seen God preparing himself a dwelling place. Preparing himself a tent where he can come and where he can dwell in the midst of his people. And of course... This passage shows us the very heart of our God towards his people. It shows us the heart of God towards sinners. We've already mentioned this, but remember the book of Genesis. Some of the most depressing words in all of the scripture, I believe, are there at the end of chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, when man is kicked out unceremoniously from the Garden of Eden. And a cherubim is placed there to prevent him from coming into the garden of God's presence. And what we see here is God beginning to break down the barriers between man, sinful man, and a holy God. But note here, that even while this is the consummative act of the book of Exodus, it's not complete 
is it? Look at what happens here in verse 35. The glory of the Lord has come onto the tabernacle, and, and what, what is the result of that? Well, interestingly, Moses has interacted with the Lord on a very intimate basis up to this point in the book. But here, when the glory fills the tabernacle, Moses is not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Even though we see in the book of Exodus God's grace to us, God's grace to come and to dwell in the midst of his people, we still see that there is a barrier. There is a barrier. Of course, this verse points us forward. It points us forward in the Pentateuch itself, in the Torah, in the book of Moses. It points us forward to the high point of the book of Moses, which is Leviticus chapter 16. What happens in Leviticus chapter 16? What happens in Leviticus chapter 16 is God tells the people of Israel how it is that the high priest can enter in to the tent of meeting with the Lord on the day of atonement. How it is that God's people can bring their sacrifices to atone for their sin into the midst of the glory of God. It points us forward to that point. But of course it points us past that, doesn't it? Even there, all we see are types and shadows. Even there, in that glorious moment when the high priest comes into the midst of the holy place to bring his sacrifice and we see God and man interacting in a way which has not been possible. Throughout all of redemptive history up until that point, even there, God is pointing us forward to something yet more glorious. Because as we learn in the book of Hebrews, what we see created here in all its intricate detail and all its glory outwardly in the tabernacle and then later even in the temple is but a shadow, it's but a type, it's but a replica of the heavenly reality. And we know, brothers and sisters, that no priest bringing the blood of goats and calves could ever atone for our sin. They could bring all the goats and all the calves that they could ever imagine, but they could never reconcile the alienated man and his holy God. But they pointed forward to one who could. You see, it's here in the incompleteness of this reconciliation that we are pointed to our Savior. It's here that we see, that we understand, that we need a high priest. We need one who can enter into the very presence of God in heaven. And of course we know we have one like that in Jesus Christ. We have a great priest. After the order of Melchizedek, a king priest. A priest who comes into the very presence of God, bringing not the blood of bulls and calves, but bringing his own blood. His blood, which is powerful enough to bring an end 
to the separation between alienated sinners and a holy God. Friend, this is where the book of Exodus is pointing us. This is where Moses would have us look today as we begin to consider how God shows us his heart for sinners in the book of Exodus. He would have us look forward to that fellowship and that communion with our Lord Jesus Christ that is available to sinners in the preaching of the apostolic gospel. Cast your minds forward to the first epistle of John as he speaks to us there of what he has seen manifested in the life and in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he speaks to us of how he has faithfully preached that message to all the Christians, and as he tells us that as a result of that proclamation, sinners have been invited into fellowship, fellowship, communion with God. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see the glory of Jesus Christ in the book of Exodus. I hope you see where the book is pointing us. And friend, if you're here this evening and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have never responded by God's grace to that gospel proclamation, that that gospel invitation to come and to have fellowship with your creator. I extend that offer to you now. Come, receive Jesus Christ by faith. Rest on his promises and find the only way that you can have the solution to man's greatest problem. Come and find communion and intimacy with the God who created you, who created you for communion and fellowship with himself. Friends, this is the message of the book of Exodus. It's Jesus Christ. It's the message of every book, from Genesis to Revelation. And here, as we begin to study this particular part of God's word, I pray that we will see the solution that God has for our greatest problem. I pray that we will see here that while we have been alienated from him, that he has accomplished our salvation in the preservation of his people, in the deliverance of his people, and in his invitation and desire to dwell with his people in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider your grace to us, even as we see it in types and shadows in the shadow lands of the Old Testament, Lord, we are reminded. We are reminded of what a glorious yet gracious God we have. Lord, we pray that as we embark upon the study of this most wonderful book, that you would show us your love for us in Jesus Christ. We pray, O Father, that we would not become bored reading and studying your marvelous works. And we pray, Lord, that you would remind us constantly 
that what we see here is but a tiny foreshadowing of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Father, we do praise your holy name. Your arm is indeed not too short to save. And we pray, O Father, that you would imprint upon our minds and upon our hearts an attitude of submission and gratefulness, a desire to worship you, and a desire to praise you for the glorious salvation that you have wrought for us, alienated sinners who have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his strong name. Amen.